Well, good morning, and I want to add my welcome and greeting to all of you and wish you a very Merry Christmas, the final Sunday before Advent. I should tell you, right as I was walking out, I managed to somehow hook my microphone cable on a doorknob. It's amazing the amount of whiplash one can actually sustain in the Advent season from a very skinny little beige cable. So I'm going to try to recompose myself here and again say welcome. Thank you to Matt and Ashton and Peyton and the whole crew upstairs. Welcome to those of you on the third floor. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online here on the second floor. It is our culmination, our completion of our celebration of the Advent season. And I don't know what all has been going on with you and your family, but I hope and trust, expect and assume that there has been some uh, marvel, some mystery, some, I don't want to use the term magic out of context, but something amazing. And there's a whole lot of messaging that comes bombarding at us in the Christmas season, in the Advent season. And I just wonder if you've had the opportunity to pause and stop and, and really ask and bask, what if it's all true? Now, I don't mean all of the fairly recent and modern pageantry and mythology and all of that kind of stuff. No, I mean, what if it's really true, these things that we claim and confess at the Advent season, what if it's really true? And I want to say this morning, very directly if I can, that what we believe to be true is what makes us who we are. So Advent's a wonderful time to ask yourself the question, what do I really believe? What do we really believe? Because what we believe to be true is what makes us who we are. So what if it's really true, all the, the wonder of Christmas? My hope, my prayer, my anticipation, is, and especially at this Advent season, we would believe that what God's Word says is true and that we would think rightly about God. I'm always struck at the Advent season for some reason with the Chronicles of Narnia. It's not specifically a Christmas or an Advent story, but there's one scene in particular that always grabs me, and it's in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and it's the beginning of Prince Caspian. Maybe you're familiar with the series, maybe you're not, but there's this wonderful scene in which little British Lucy Pevensey, I mean, with a name like that, you just have to be apple-cheeked, right? Lucy Pevensey, and she's once again confronted with Aslan, the lion the great and powerful, the massive, the marvelous Aslan. And she sees him, not for the first time, and in the story, she's returned and she's met by him, who is, of course, in so very many wonderful ways in Lewis's narrative, the Christ figure. And she says, she's just sort of taken by his enormity and his, his power and his ferocity. In the story, he sees her and he very gently says, Welcome, child. And she responds and says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says to her, that is because you are older, little one. She asks, not because you are. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That little passage always convicts me. As we grow, we find him bigger. And so I always have to do some inventory this time of year. In the December month, that whole time frame, I ask myself, have I grown? Has my God grown bigger in my eyes, in my embrace? 
Or have I stagnated and God's sort of just become an accessory to my existence? We're going to take a show of hands here on the second floor. No, we're not. I'm kidding. Don't do that. The problem we have is that all of us are leaky vessels. Our awe has a tendency to leak. And we all get sort of stuck in this dark malaise and monotony. And all the things that we claim are true, they have a way of drifting into legend. And we busily go about our moments, our days, until those days turn into weeks and then months and then years. But what if the things that we claim at Christmas were really true? And we dwelled on those things. And those things made us grow. They made us grow. They made us grow. So that God, in our estimation and in our embrace, was actually bigger. My hope is that by the time we finish up this morning, and as we go through Christmas Eve on Thursday evening, that you would join us. And that God would be bigger in our experience. Our big idea for this morning as we wrap up our Advent series comes from John's Gospel, chapter 1, and it simply goes like this. God has given himself. It's the greatest gift conceivable. God has given himself. We are intended to think about Exodus chapter 3 when Moses sees the bush burning from afar, this thing that is on fire but is not consumed. And Moses approaches this thing and God says to him, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And then God proceeds to explain and describe what he's like. He says, I am Yahweh and I am like me. Because there's nothing like me. I am that I am. I am existence itself. And God has given himself. Now we're going to be in John's gospel this morning. A couple weeks ago we started in the gospel of Matthew. And we said that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. Last week we were in the gospel of Luke. And our big idea there was Christmas is the end of fear. This morning we're going to look at John's gospel because Mark's gospel really doesn't have a detailed Advent narrative, we might say. We're going to be at John's gospel looking at what he has to say. Matthew and Mark and Luke, in a sense, tell us of what happened at Advent. But John's gospel tells us why. I've heard this asked several times. Why are there four gospels when one will do? Well, they each have a different angle of approach. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us what happened. John tells us why that it has happened. Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew is written to Jews. Mark was principally written to a Roman audience. Luke is written to a Greek audience. But John is written to everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. Matthew's trying to convey that Christ is the king. Mark's trying to convey that Christ is a suffering servant. Luke is trying to say that Jesus is the man because he's human. And John is trying to say that Christ is God, that he's actually divine, that he's actually deity. And so we put all those things together. We can see this enormous gift that God has given. God has given himself. So we've already heard the Johnson family. Thank you, Johnson family, for reading that. I'm going to pick up and read in John's Gospel, chapter 1, and we're going to walk through this fairly efficiently, I think. John chapter 1, the prologue. Now, as I begin to read in John chapter 1, I want to remind you that what John does in his gospel is different than any other gospel writer. We're pretty certain about this, that John writes his entire gospel, and then he circles back and he adds the beginning. 
that these first 18 verses that we'll cover this morning very briefly here as we culminate Advent, these first 18 verses, what we call the prologue, he really added at the end. Because what John does is he gets to the end of his gospel and he says, there's not a big enough mushroom cloud. There's not a big enough explosion to really grab their attention. And so when he adds the prologue, he said, let me make sure you understand all that I have just described. Let me start off with a bang. So these first 18 verses are intended to absolutely shudder and stun us. So John says, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. In the very beginning, at the creation, before there was anything, there was Him. At the very beginning, He was there already. It's an intentional and clear connection to Genesis 1. Remember, John's point is that Jesus is God, not a superhero. He is God, and at the beginning, He's there already. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, John is telling us that Jesus is preexistent, and that's really important. He says that he's the Word. It's a little bit hard for us to understand, but John's doing something marvelous under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John's telling us about this Jesus, this vulnerable little baby Jesus laid in a manger, that he's unique. He's trying to tell us that he is the Logos, and in Greek philosophy, the Logos simply meant all that was unexplainable and other. It's sort of like imagining the forces of the universe, uh, gravity and light and heat, all of that in the entire universe, that's the Logos. And John wants us to understand that all gravity of the universe, billions of light years in every direction, all the light and all of the heat, all that exists that is other, became a person. I don't know how far your mind can expand. I don't know how far your, your brain can process. But I want you to imagine if all of the gravity and light and the heat in the entire universe was encapsulated in a human being. We have a tendency because of Marvel and DC Comics to think he would be awesome. But not a little pudgy, pink, vulnerable, defenseless baby. And that's how God chooses to enter our world. God gave us himself. Not only is he the Logos, the word, but John's doing something amazing because he's talking not just to Gentile audiences, but Hebrew audiences as well. When he says he is the word, in the Hebrew Old Testament, you would always hear the prophets say, Dabar Yahweh, the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah the prophet, and the word of the Lord came to Micah, and the word of the Lord came to David and to Moses, and it came to Abraham, the word of the Lord, Dabar Yahweh. Oh, it's a baby. So you have John mixing and mingling these two great schools of theology and philosophy, the Word, the Logos, and Dabar, Yahweh. It's him, and he's preexisting, and there's never been a time when he was not. John continues, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, and we translate it with God, because we don't know what else to say. The word John uses in Greek is pros. He is toward God. He is inclined to the Father from the very beginning. This is a personality statement. It's not a, a, just a thing. The Word was with, in relationship, inclined to God. And the Word was God. Not that he stopped being, but this is a very clear statement of divinity. Remember John's point, Jesus is God. He's not a God as some cultic, sectish people like to claim. No, 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 no. He was not a created being. 
He is absolutely God. He is divine. This is a direct uh, declaration of his deity and divinity. When you hear people say, well, the Bible never claims that Jesus is God, except for that whole between the table of contents and the maps section, where it very frequently claims that he is God. He was in the beginning with God. There has never been a time when he was not. So let me be very clear about that. When we think about Jesus, when we think about God, it is not good versus evil. It's not Jesus versus his cranky younger brother, Satan. That's an epic heresy. Don't fall into that nonsense. There's no competition. He was in the beginning with God. Not only was he with God, all things were made through him. I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus. He is creator. He is what Revelation will call the pantocrator, the creator, the sovereign, the master, the mighty of everything. Paul says it in Colossians. The writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 1. He is the creator of all things. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That leaves out nothing. Now keep that in mind, because that even includes darkness. And that's very important for us to think through as we come to the end of 2020. And may I be so bold as to say that when the clock strikes midnight on December 31st and you experience the first breath of 2021, nothing's going to change. So that's not exactly gospel good news encouragement, but it's still okay because God has given us himself. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life. Psalm 104 says that God himself is the source, the emanation, the epicenter of life itself. He's not just the way to life. Friends, he is life. And apart from him, there is not. Because you see, that's what apart means. Apart means separation. It means death. He is the source of all life. It's him. And if I may be so bold, y'all, he became a baby. Now that's scandalous. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That which shines. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. <laughs> the light shines, and the darkness has not overcome we have a tendency to think of light as a heavy sort of draping blanket. And we have to understand in John's day, when he writes this 2,000 years ago, light is very fragile. Even in Ephesus, a major cosmopolitan center, light is fragile. You have an oil lamp in your home, and if someone walks by too quickly, they can puff it out. A match gets blown out very quickly. And yet, all of the darkness of the entire universe cannot snuff out the light of a single match. And John wants us to understand where it might seem to you that all of this heavy darkness can snuff out the light. No, in fact, what has happened is this little puff of life and light came into the world and it actually snuffed out all of the darkness. Now, I don't know what kind of year you have had, what kind of decade you have had, what kind of life you have had, but I suspect that it's probably been tinged with at least a fair amount of darkness. But what John is saying is here, friends, Christians, believers, it's been snuffed out already. It has been overcome. Now, some of your translations might say the darkness has not understood. Bad translation. It is overcome. John's telling us something. It is finished already. And not yet. 
finished. It's all about the light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then John's going to pick up steam and tell us all about why this all comes to bear. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John again talking about John, not the same person. John the disciple talking about John the baptizer. Not the Baptist. He was not a denomination. Not a Methodist, not a Baptist. He's just John the baptizer. But what John the disciple is telling us is, don't you see? It's all redemptive recreation. This light metaphor. In the beginning, we see creation. But we also see redemption. Where the darkness that fills the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, is redemptively recreated with the light of God. We go to the book of Revelation, also written by John, and we have chapter 4, which is a creation hymn, where the light explodes on the scene. We go to chapter 5, it's a redemption hymn, where the light of God explodes in the hearts of human beings. And so John, the disciple, says, it's beginning. You guys, you guys, it's happening. It's happening. Let me explain how this all rolls out. And so very quickly, verses 6 through 11, John walks through this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That is the light. That is Jesus. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. It's dawned. It's flickering. It's just now sending out its first shafts of life and light and hope and love. It's just beginning. It's only going to increase. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? I mean, really stopped and shut your proverbial pie hole like it's very hard for me to do and think that the one who made it entered into it. As Jesus is born and laid in a manger in Bethlehem with his very confused parents leaning over him and the light of the moon reflects to Jesus. Have you ever thought about the fact that this baby made that moon? It's unbelievable. And how did he make it? Well, he worked really hard. He found a whole bunch of materials from his dad's garage. No! He spoke a word. He simply said, let there be... And between the B and the E, there was. And he became human. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. See, God has a way of acting not according to our expectations. Surely he's going to come on a war horse or flanked by gajabillions of angels. No, he's going to have a diaper. It's not how I would draw this up. God often doesn't work according to our model of efficiency and expectation. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You should feel the pang of sorrow when you hear John 1, 11. They did not receive their king. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, all Jews and Gentiles, who did receive him, who believed in his name, who believed that this Jesus was who the Bible said that he was. Remember all these monotheistic Yahwists, these good little Jewish boys believed that their rabbi was Yahweh. Now that's remarkable. And so because of their testimony, come and see, and they would go and tell. Come and see, and they would go and tell. Others received 
and they believed. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I need to pause there for just a moment. The word there, he gave the right to become children of God. It's the word uh, for authority. It's not power like force and strength and might. It is the authority. If I come to your house this afternoon unannounced and I just throw open your door, that's going to be strange to you. And we live in Texas, so I'm not going to do that. But if I come to your house, even invited, I'm probably not going to walk into your kitchen, throw open the refrigerator, and just clean it out, eat every block of cheese in sight. I'm not going to do that. Oh, we're friends, but you haven't given me the authority, the right. We don't have that relational proximity. But when your oldest son comes home from college, he just walks in, opens the fridge, and grazes like locust in Kansas. He eats everything. Why? Because he has the relationship. He has the proximity. He has been given the authority. He has the right. Do, do you see what John is saying? This is a gift. It has been granted to you. I am giving you refrigerator rights of the kingdom of heaven. I want us all to feel the nearness and the granularity of what John is saying God has done. God has given us himself. Come, eat. A little later, we're going to have communion, and it's not going to feel very banquet-like, I promise you. But if we will consider and comprehend the feasting, we've been given refrigerator rights to our God. He has granted us, by grace, the right to become children of God. Verse 13, these children of God who were born, not of blood, that's actually plural, not of bloods, meaning anything that they have by their own lineage or heritage or ethnicity or genetics or heredity or anything, not of their bloods, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. How are these people getting refrigerator rights to the kingdom of heaven? Well, it has to be granted. You don't get refrigerator rights in the kingdom of heaven just because you're kind of awesome because you're born at the right time or the right place or know the right people. No, none of that. It is all a gift of God. This is the gospel. It's very good news. Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. Christmas. The incarnation. Whereas Matthew told the Christmas story in his way and Luke told it in his way, here is John, here is Advent. And the word, the logos, the Dabar Yahweh, the word became flesh. Vulnerable, defenseless, killable. Shouldn't go that way. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The word there is he tabernacled. He established the showplace of the glory of God and the presence of God among us amidst the manure of a stable. What kind of God would do this? No other religion, no other faith construct, no other system of belief would dare hint or even mention that the divine would be willing to enter into our mess and our muck. But John says very clearly, he became flesh and he tabernacled among us. And we have seen 
his glory. John says, I'm telling you, and I am not lying. We, the apostles in this context, we have seen it. He cooks the most amazing breakfast. He smells like a fisherman. He smells like a carpenter. He tells not-so-great jokes. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. The law of Moses, you see, was a grace, but no human could accomplish it. And so you also had to have the sacrificial system where something innocent would die in the place of the guilty. And John says, oh, it's happened. It was our teacher, our rabbi, our friend, our leader. He fulfilled the law of Moses, and he completed the Levitical sacrificial system. It's all him. It's a person. He did this. Not the force, not some energy cloud in the sky. He, it's a person, it's a him. Verse 15, he says, John, the baptizer, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John's kind of going a little bit Yoda there. It's cool. It's totally cool. John's quoting John the baptizer who says, I'm five months older than Jesus, but he's eternal. I'm actually five months older than my cousin, but he ranks me because he's, well, not just older. He's, oh, you know, everlastingly eternal. So John's quoting John's witness. Verse 16, for from his fullness. Now, this is a little bit of a, of a trick word here. John is now responding to the Gnostics, the heretics of his day, who wanted to make God and religion and faith and belief about everything other than the Messiah. Just imagine a world. Just imagine a world where there's a, an attempt to sort of diminish or minimize or trivialize or deflect or distract from the actual Messiah. He uses the term the fullness. That's a Gnostic word. The Gnostics were saying, you can achieve, accomplish, obtain the fullness if you come to us, get secret knowledge. We will give you answers for just the right price. But wait, don't answer. There's more. Steak knives. We'll give you the fullness. John says, no, 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 no. God has granted it to you. It's a person. It's him. What if it was true? All that John is talking about. What if it was actually true? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We don't have a fullness. We don't even accomplish our own fullness from his fullness. You see, it's him. It's a person. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Substitution, substitution, substitution. What happened in a stable in Bethlehem is the gospel. The innocent laid in place of the guilty so that the guilty might live and have life and shine light. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Well, what about, what about? No, no, I mean really seen God. Oh, Moses caught the backside of God as he passed by proclaiming his excellencies and it aged Moses and made him glow. No one's ever seen God for that would be lethal to them. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has exegeted him is the word. He exegetes. He drills down, reveals, and demonstrates and displays what God is. How can he do that? Because he has been with him forever. If you really want to know a person, you should interview the person that has spent the most time with that person. That would be the son who is himself in very nature God, who has been with God 
forever and ever and ever. And he has been made flesh and he tabernacled, he dwelled among us. God has given himself. What if it was all true? Why do we talk about this stuff at Advent? Just because it's on the calendar? Just because we're trying to push back against some other holiday myths and traditions? No, because we want people's lives to literally be transformed. To literally be different this afternoon than it was this morning. So as I've just been sort of processing, why? Why would anybody care about John 1 in a practical reality? Why does anybody actually care about the prologue of John's gospel? Let me give you five questions that I would argue perhaps are the five fundamental questions of the human animal, of the human being. What are the five fundamental questions that this text asks and answers? This could not be more practical for all of us in any of the floors or when you're watching remotely. Number one goes like this. What is God really like? Do you have any idea how much literature for the last thousands and thousands of years has been written while people try to figure out and assume and guesstimate what God is like? What's he like? Is he cranky? Does he live under the ocean? Does he live up on top of the mountain? Does he fly? Does he have relationships with swans? What is that? I don't know. What is God really like? Short answer, Jesus. What's God like? He's, he's like Jesus. The Word became flesh. The incarnation lifts the veil of people's uncertainty about God. God is scary because we don't, we don't know, but he gives us himself. Read the gospel accounts. Read what he says. Read what he does. Read what he thinks. Read what makes him weep. And that's what God is like because Jesus exegetes the Father. Put it this way, all that we need God to be is true in Christ. I don't know what you think you need God to be. Not a genie, not a superhero. Both of those will fail. Both of those will die. All that we need God to be is true in Christ. He reveals, he exegetes, he demonstrates God. Second question, does God really understand the human struggle? Yes. More perfectly and profoundly and passionately than any of us ever will. I heard it said just this week, if, if there was a God, why would he let that horrible thing happen to that person in that family? And I get it. That's very sincere. That's very real. Does God really exist? And does he understand the human struggle? Yes. John's answer is that the word dwelt among us. He identified with humanity, particularly in their weakness and suffering and vulnerability and killability. No other religion has the concept of God sharing humanity's struggle with them. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts this. Spurgeon said, He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life, it's Christmas time, from the trivial irritations of family life, do you remember Jesus' brothers and sisters? <laughs> they were like, dude, for seriousness, shush, you're embarrassing us. Jesus knows what it is to have those family members. He knows. And the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was the man, he played the man. Does God know what the human struggle is like? <laughs> More than we do. Yes, 
Third question, does God really care? Is he involved? Is he near? Does God really care? Yes. The fact that he became flesh answers that question. I mean, ew. He entered into the likes of us. Look around. No, don't. Yes, the fact that he became flesh answers that believers are reconciled through the incarnate one who was full of grace and truth. What more could he give? God has given us himself. Yes, he cares more than any of us will ever comprehend. Next question. Does life really matter? People have been asking this for thousands and thousands of years. And John's gospel tells us resoundingly, yes, the word became flesh. It matters to God. The incarnation is the supreme affirmation of our human existence. God cares about the lives of human beings. We are created uniquely in his image. Not even the angels are created in his image. Spurgeon says it this way, Our human life truly was the vehicle for God's life. Think about that. Our life was truly the vehicle for God's life. Our flesh contained the word, and our humanity was home for him who is forever. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Jesus Christ, who is God of God, will be a human being forever. He didn't just shuck off his meat suit at the ascension. He is a human being. I don't know exactly where heaven is locationally, dimensionally, is it right here? But I know it is an environment suitable for a human being. In the flesh, because there's one there now, while everybody else awaits the resurrection. There is the first root that is present there now. Fifth question, what is life ultimately for? What's the point? Why am I here? What's the point? John answers, and the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. That's the point. The glory of God, the goodness of mankind. The greatness of this doctrine staggers our, our imagination, or at least it ought to. It ought to drive people to our knees in worship. The Reformers have been saying this for hundreds of years. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Christmas, Advent, is that reminder that we get to live in that enjoyment now. See, Jesus is the Lagos, the Word of God, the Dabar Yahweh. And John wants all of us to fully experience and enjoy and embrace that. It's the greatest news in all human history. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Lewis says, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Christians say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. I hear Christians all the time, if I could just get a miracle from God, and I say lovingly, I try, you've had it. God became flesh. Every sign in the Old Testament prepared for the incarnation or demonstrated the incarnation or points back to God tabernacles among us. We're to think rightly about this Jesus, especially in a culture that is spinning so many other legends and tales about the season and the person. I want to end with this. My favorite Advent quote comes, well, from 1,700 years ago, from St. Augustine, talking about the incarnation. Augustine says this, Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, 
might nurse as a helpless child, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses. Can you imagine? The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life might die. How much does God love us? God gave us himself. So this Advent season, I pray that you will receive the word, that you will hear God, that you will see the light, that you will see God, that you will experience life and experience God, and you will consider the Son and rightly relate to God. And that by this time next year, you, like little Lucy, will have grown, and your God will be even bigger to you. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gospel, for the good news, and for Jesus. And Father, we would be remiss if we did not confess that it has been a challenging season. But it's not been the only challenging season we've ever experienced as a species. Many have gone who have struggled and who have suffered. And yet our struggle is real. And so Father, if there's anyone here this morning who still dwells in darkness... Would you reveal to them light? Would you grant them refrigerator rights? Father, for the rest of us who perhaps are leaky vessels of awe, would you use the remainder of this Advent season to fill us with your wonder, glory, splendor, and amazing grace so that we, your people, might proclaim joy to the world. Not anger because of our circumstance, but may the church, your people, proclaim joy to the world far as the curse is found. And we pray this in the only way we can. In the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus.